0: Welcome back to the Wild at Heart podcast. This week, we're talking to Maya, a multi certified dog trainer who works with Ivy League dogs in Montreal. On a personal level, Maya and I study together at the Academy for Dog Trainers, and we still speak every day. She's one of the trainers who I trusted to help me when I first rescued Mozzie. Maya works in person in Montreal and virtually, and I highly recommend her to anyone listening. We sat down to discuss a sensitive topic, dogs rescued from the meat trade. While we don't speak about graphic details, this may disturb some listeners, so please take care while listening. Maya worked with these dogs while with Humane Society International, and I was fascinated to learn all about them. To work with Maya, you can visit her at ivyleaguedogs.ca and on her Instagram account at Maya underscore Rosetta. For more information on working with me or to register for a class or webinar, please visit wildatheartdogs.com. For those of you who don't know Maya, Maya is a dear friend of mine. Um, Starting way back when we were just we students in the academy, Maya was my study buddy and we still to this day talk every day. Um, I ask Maya for everything from advice with my own dogs to some of my cases and Um, if you don't follow Maya's Instagram account, I highly recommend watching her work with dogs is truly, it's just, uh, it's a sight to see. Um, but Maya and I both have something in common and that is that we both started working in shelters way back. And that was, um, we both have shelters as our, I think our first loves and certainly still there. Both of us now work with pet dogs. Um, But Maya um, comes with a lot of experience in something that I don't have experience with, and that is working with dogs from the meat trade. Um, So we want to be very clear off the bat that we're not here to judge countries or people where these practices occur. We're just here to discuss the dogs, their behavior, and what it was like to work with them. Many people are working with policymakers in the countries where this practice takes place. So if you are passionate about this subject, please consider donating to an organization such Humane Society International. And while we will be careful to avoid discussing any abuse, neglect, or other aspects of the meat trade in detail, this content could still be disturbing to some, so please take care while listening. So good morning, Maya. (laughs) Um, Good morning, Emily. So you worked in a few capacities with meat trade survivors who came to Canada. You started volunteering with rescues from farms 11 through 13 and worked then later as a team lead with farms 14 through 17. Um, And when we were talking before the podcast, you even mentioned to me that you used to take vacation from your previous job to actually work with these dogs, which... I think speaks to the passion that you must have had working with them. So give us a little backstory, just like how did you even get started working with dogs from the meat trade?
1: Uh, It was actually um, a funny story because uh, I called on another CTC to help me train my dog um, after we had a little incident. And she was a team lead at the Humane Society. So she asked me that um, they were posting, they were looking for volunteers. I sent in the application and the rest is history.
0: (laughs) Amazing. And what was it that drew you in? What was it about that exchange? So you hired a CTC. For those who don't know, that's um, somebody who is certified through the Academy for Dog Trainers. They come to work with you and your dog. And what was it that sort of sparked your curiosity there?
1: I mean, I can say I always loved dogs, but I wanted to help. And for me to help, I think I could only help when it comes to animals. Um, I really wanted to um, to see how what I can kind of bring to the table. I had no idea about dog meat trade and meat dogs. Um, <clears throat> she had been a uh, she had been a team lead for quite some time. I had tried to reach out to the SPCA, um, but they have a lot more applicants. So the posting for the volunteer for humane society they had, there had so much flexibility. They really went along with your schedule. So it was very accommodating for me as well. And um, yeah, and I just wanted, and then that's why I became a dog trainer. One of the reasons.
0: Amazing. It's such an interesting progression. And you really, I think, started by jumping into the deep end. Most people would start maybe the opposite way. They would start working with dogs, teaching dogs to sit and like basics. But you went right full, full force right into um, a very intense uh, situation. So um, I think the name is pretty pretty uh self-explanatory but give us just the sort of rundown about what what is the meat trade so when we talk about meat trade survivors or the meat trade what are we talking about
1: so we're talking about um I mean the farming of dogs or human consumption I won't go into any more detail I think it's self-explanatory um these are practices that are not really popular anymore but it, it's a shift that's happening and it's really really um, <clears throat> I think it's it's getting out there. Um, so people do want to trade trades, trade trades, trade, change jobs, and you know it's their livelihood. Um, because you know, as, as we all know, dogs are sentient beings and they're really part of our family. <clears throat> but you know, there's in different countries, there's a lot of different cultural practices, so we're not gonna blame shame or put any uh, culture or 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 country down uh, what happens is that th- what's important is that there's a big shift so this industry is not profitable and it's changing so that's where we're going to welcome uh, these people reaching out to organizations and they need help um, and we can shame them we can put them down no they HSI will go in help them out and will rescue the dogs and um, they will be flown to Many places, but we were located in Montreal, so we would get um, dogs from the meat trade through um, the US into our rehabilitation center in Montreal.
0: Fascinating. Amazing. So um, one thing that I mentioned before we were um, podcasting when we were talking about what we would be talking about, um, and I've never worked with, um, I don't even know that I've met a meat trade survivor, but my assumption was that these dogs are the same thing as street dogs, but you sort of set me straight on that. So what would the difference be? Like We do see where I live we see a lot of dogs that are rescued from the streets, from various places, Mexico, things like that. Um, and I guess we the the term rescuing these dogs probably is also another podcast episode all into itself. But <laughs> um, when we're talking about um, meat trade survivors, how do they differ from from street dogs that we would see rescued from from other countries?
1: I think one of the biggest things for me, and again, this is my opinion, my experience, is they don't seem to have any agency. Um, Street dogs, as I think we can all kind of see them, they roam on the streets, they scavenge, and they're able to kind of make friends with certain humans or restaurant owners um, to get food. But meat dogs are essentially kept on a farm in barren cages or chained up on an outside link, and those... Dogs may potentially have uh, more agency because they can at least move around in circles. Uh, But most of them are just kept in there and never let out. Um, Food is brought to them. And again, food is a really big word um, because what they usually are fed is. um, I don't even know how to describe it. I never saw it in person, (laughs) (laughs) but it just looks like goo. Um, I think it's just like run down. It just like, it looks like a bad soup. Um, I think some of them are not used to um, eating dry food. So soupy things are just kind of more appropriate for them, but it's definitely not nutritionally balanced. Um, so they're also in cages that are not appropriate to their size or or they grow up to be much larger than when they were puppies. So, I mean, it's, it's not an environment. Um, they will walk on their feces they will sleep uh I think as a bed they may have a tire right or like a metal giant dish to lay in um <clears throat> some farmers had heat lamps some farmers had maybe some hay but it was all bare, and then they were always exposed to all elements and it does in some countries it does snow and it does get cold
0: wow okay so a big difference there between a dog like a street dog who um, can come and go as they please. Um, obviously they're not always living a life that we think of, um, that we want for pet dogs here in like North America and like other countries, but, um, street dogs, like you say, they have agency, they can come and go. Whereas the meat trade dogs, they are living in,
1: When we say farm,
0: we literally mean a farm. They are kept in cages that, I guess, would it be more like what we think of, um, when we think of like a puppy mill and things like that, like cages where the dogs can't get loose, they don't have time outside of a cage.
1: Nope. Not that I, not that I know of. I mean, sometimes maybe one of the farmers could really get, um, develop a relationship maybe with one of the dogs, but it's not, um. I think some of the farms were up to 200 300 dogs so there's no there's no time um to be letting them out i mean just think about the north american shelter system we would love to have one-on-one time with each dog that is in the kennel but there's shortage of staff and 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 revenue so these guys were i mean they were meant for one reason and one reason only so Trying to develop a relationship with them was probably not the best thing for the farmer to get emotionally attached.
0: And we see that I, you know, I would point out that we see that in North America as well in some of our factory farms. You know, the um, the the there's a high volume. Welfare isn't always high on the list. Um, and it's, it's not what we think of when we think of, you know, like a sprawling farm with room to roam that we see some of these practices actually mirrored in our culture in our life, um, with Mm -hmm. chickens and things like that. Okay. So, um, what would, um, when we talk about, you know, dogs who are caged, they don't have agency to come and go. They have limited contact you know we start to see that all of the markers of good welfare wouldn't be there um you know they may have a sleeping surface but they may not they're in their own feces so when we're talking about um when now we're going to be bringing these dogs to canada for adoption how does living that way contribute to
1: their behavior i mean that's that's a really interesting question i mean the purpose of our shelter was to welcome them and really get them they had already gone through a vet checkup prior to arriving because we have to follow some protocols um, for importing dogs from other countries. But our main goal was to really give them proper nutrition, water, right? Because it's not something that they were used to having either. Um, shelter, uh, blankets, um, enrichment that they've never had. So it was really um, and vet care. That was the main goal upon arrival. First, we let them settle in because the flight, then the drive through the border, if it happened to be um, in a loaded truck, um, we had to get to know them as well, right? Because they came with their personalities. Um, so it was just the first couple of weeks was really just decompression. So um, our main goal was to set up quiet environments with music. We would go and do the necessary things. Um, we would try to limit contact because most of them were petrified of even seeing us approach. Um, so it was really just to kind of start building some kind of a trusting relationship with them. Uh, so one of the reasons why I wanted to volunteer so much is because I could see more of a difference if I was a constant presence versus if I could only show up once a month. So I really, thanks to the flexibility, I became one of that person that sort of got to know a lot of these dogs. And I just, I really wanted to see them flourish.
0: It's so interesting we I've again I've never worked with meat trade survivors but we did work in shelter with dogs from um, backyard breeders from hoarding cases and all sorts of even feral dogs that had never had contact with humans and the one thing that was consistent with all of those dogs was um they did bond very in some cases very quickly to the people that worked with them every day. Um, even the feral dogs, it was surprising how quickly they started to come around to their consistent handlers. Um, and that I think speaks volumes for just having the patience and going slow, um, and letting them decompress. I mean, this is a huge thing. We can't just take these dogs, um, and pick them up and put them into a home with like lights and TVs and sounds and kids and all of the things that come with that. It's, I think we, Uh, As dog trainers, I think our profession doesn't do a very good job of sort of um, passing the information on to people. Just what we don't think about when we bring home a little puppy, how many things that our little puppy is becoming um, socialized or used to just being in our home. So things like the dishwasher going on or the surface, Mm -hmm. the feeling of linoleum versus the feeling of carpet, stairs, all of these things that we don't, we take them for granted. Um, But for these dogs that come from backgrounds like this, it's a, that's a big learning curve so um would it be safe to say that some of these dogs come in with um you mentioned that you know they need consistency so are we
1: talking about um fearful behavior very much so i mean a lot of them were i can count maybe on one hand some of the more friendly and open but sometimes on meat farms there's it could potentially be a mix of meat farm dogs that were born and bred on site. And sometimes you could see that I think that dog may have been dropped off because there may be not some any shelters or rescues. So for like a monetary compensation. So you could see some of them probably were used to some human contact. Um, but most of them were I mean I have never seen so much fear and shut down and learned helplessness. Like if, if if you know what that is, and when you think that you can almost do anything to this dog, it's not because they're actually okay with that. It's they just want things to, to end. So they won't even aggress, right? There's very rare that there was aggressive behavior towards staff or or volunteers. It was mainly just fine. Just, you know what, do what you got to do. And whatever, it'll be done and I'll maybe survive type of thing. Um, So body language in these guys, I've, I mean, I've never, I learned so much about subtle signs in these dogs that maybe I'm a bit annoying with body language in my day-to-day clients, but it's just, it goes a long way of really understanding them and they're all individuals. Right. So um, it's really, if, if, I think if you ever worked in a shelter and you ever have, I think it's a privilege for me to have been working with these dogs. I learned a whole lot from them. I think it's worth kind of living through, but it's not easy. Yeah. I mean, many tears were shed. I bet.
0: It's well, and for those who don't work with fear, or um, if you are a non trainer listening and you are, you know, you're a pet owner um, who hasn't experienced fear, we get fear into our dogs in many ways. Um, And we consider it very, very easy to get into a dog and very, very difficult to get out. And the problem with working through fear is we, it's not up to us how fast we go. So if we're Mm -hmm. training a behavior like sit, if we go too fast, maybe the training falls apart, but no harm, no foul. The dog is just fine. But in the case of fear, it's very different because it is a very slippery slope. And if we go faster than our dog is ready, um, we could actually make it worse rather than make it better. Mm -hmm. And so when we have these dogs, um, It can be, I mean, I think even for some of us who work with fearful dogs, um, we have to constantly remind ourselves, like we have to, it's sometimes it's like watching paint dry. It can be that slow Mm -hmm. and, and, um, but so when we see these dogs, um, the, the trick is that we can't just, again, we can't just bring them, put them into a new new home and see all of that evaporate, that that's always going to be there on some level when we're talking about fear. so what are the steps you talked about decompression? So what would be the next step in getting them ready for
1: adoption? I mean again, we our goal wasn't to teach them basic stuff, right? Like I mean, may, the most that we probably would teach a dog while they were in our care was maybe a hen target, right? Because that is really not very invasive and it's it's it gives them agency to approach a target if they want to or not. But our main um goal was to sort of assess their personality so we used a lot of color codings because i was a volunteer so you know no, nobody has time to read through a paragraph so color codes we knew okay green yellow red that sort of thing okay we also uh, were never put in any type of danger i want to make that clear as volunteers we were very well um cared for by the um the team leads but Essentially, it was to see if they could be, um, how comfortable they would be around humans in a big room. So we would kind of be retreated and like we would observe them. Would they be eating treats when we would do treat tosses? Uh, We used a lot of high value for that because, again, some of them didn't even have proper dental. Um, I mean, we needed dental work and some of them were trying, you know, they had... um, their teeth were, were in really bad shape, but it was essentially doing a lot of either, probably most of the time, counter conditioning. So always think of Pavlov, really building those positive associations with these strangers. Um, and it was essentially also to kind of teach them, okay, can they be put on leash? Can they wear a collar? Because that could that is very important for an adopter, at least, you know, maybe potentially walk them out in the yard. But for, um, I mean, it was really, that was one of the main goals is to really see, uh, can they really open up to a human? Uh, Can they be handled, but in a really, really soft, gentle way? Um, And some of them became the best cuddle bugs
0: amazing paint a picture for us as well when we're thinking about when we're imagining this what were typical breeds or mixes that that you saw so that we can
1: get an idea of what these who these dogs are so the breeds were really really quite exotic if i may use that word because i had never 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 seen these breeds so uh tosas so they're japanese mastiffs so they're sort of they're, they're like a regular mastiff but Bigger. I mean, they they have different shapes because there's some mixes too. So they're quite a large breed. Um, We also had Jindos, which is typical to South Korea. Um, It looks, it could look like um, Shiba, but they're usually white. So it could, it's sort of like a size between maybe a Japanese spit and a Shiba, uh, but it wasn't the temperament of a Shiba. Like they were, I call them little cute white foxes, like Arctic foxes. Um, We also had some super North American breeds that would creep up uh, like a Boston Terrier.
0: Interesting. So Um, would that be, like you mentioned earlier, um, likely dropped off by a guardian that no longer
1: wanted the dog and would take it to the farm? Or how would that, how would that So some of the, 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 The breeds that we usually see in North America or Canada, um, I think one of the or two of the rescues were more of a puppy mill farm type of thing Uh, because we had chihuahuas. We had, um, like I said, the Boston. I mean, we had these little, little guys. They were just the cutest things. We also had the couple of chows. uh, We had malamutes. We had some huskies and we had some i guess they call them village dogs right where they're just an ancient breed and um they're mixes uh so yeah i mean it, it was predominantly jindos and tosas so if you have 20 white jindos it would be really hard to identify them if you would let them run around loose
0: wow amazing so um, let's backtrack. Let's talk about, so the dogs are there. They, However they ended up, whether they were bred there, farmed there, however they ended up, there they were. And we mentioned at the beginning that there are farmers who are trying to get out of this trade. So they would contact the rescuers or what would be, how would that, how do they, how do we get the dogs from the farm to you? How does that process look? look what does it look like? I mean, like? I
1: believe, I believe there's, There's an outreach that's being done. And also, I don't know if the government is involved as well, although I think it it did start uh, a couple of years back. Um, To be honest with you, since COVID started, uh, mid-COVID, I stopped uh, working at the shelter um, because I became a dog trainer full time. But what happens is they are never pressured, from my understanding, is that These are not people that their arms are twisted. They really come because they want to do good. They are, they can't do this anymore. They don't want to do this. Um, So they're being, so what happens is, you know, if any organization would come into a country and shut your farm, and this is your income, this is how you provide for your family, nobody would be willing to do this. So there had to be an exchange. So what happened is, okay, you are willing To shut down your farm, we are here to help you and come up with alternative solutions. So a lot of these farmers, and this is documented online for public public to know, um, they became mushroom farmers. Interesting. um, Like just vegetable farmers. Uh, So a lot of them are not just put out of business and then, oh, well, too bad. Now you got to, you know, feed your family however you can. They are being given alternatives. And this is, I believe it's, that's the way to approach things because you are giving them a way out and assisting them.
0: Yeah. Wow. So they come to, um, whoever does outreach and we've got all of these dogs and now they're coming into Canada. Um, is that remind me is this, um, wasn't there recently some changes made to import regulations yes. in Canada. And so is this something that is still happening? Are we still getting dogs
1: in or what does that look like? Um, I don't remember. I think there was there at least 30 countries that were banned. So the US started it and I think Canada followed in September. But I'm not really sure if uh there's some countries that it, it, they cannot be any imports incoming anymore. But not every country is is banned. So I think the outreach happens in the countries that You know, they can still we we can still bring dogs in. So there's still Um, um, a need.
0: Right. So for people listening, um, Maya and I are both in Canada. And so when we're when we're talking about dogs coming in and things like that, we're we're talking about into into (laughs) Canada. Maya lives in Montreal and I live on the West Coast of, of B.C., All right. So what we talked about them being, uh, shut down. We talked about, Mm -hmm. um, can you just describe for listeners who don't know, um, you did mention learned helplessness. Can you just describe to them what learned helplessness is?
1: It's uh, the way I see it. And I think it's easier maybe for the, 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 the the day-to-day pet guardian. It's, um, I hear it a lot with pet dogs. Oh, he was fine. They were able to do everything at the groomer. Right. Um, It's maybe not as dramatic with our pet guardian because they do have some exposure to some things. But it's essentially a dog that looks, could look like they're fine. They're not moving. They could be literally shaking. But most of the time. I mean, the ears will be back, the whale eye, but they are just waiting for things to happen and be done with. So they're not fighting. They will go most of the time in the corner. Um, I think it's one of the saddest things that I've experienced with um, the dog meet dogs. And I think I became really more cognizant about body language. Um, because, again, these guys have never been... Around any of these things that we expose them to, so it's really—I don't know, Emily. You may have to help me out on this because this is really hard. Um, It's—it's really a dog that just looks like just beat the crap out of me, and whatever. And then I know that it won't last forever.
0: Yeah, I think you've done a really great job. I mean, we talk about the 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 for example, like when we're looking at uh, an example in our everyday life, the dog who goes to the groomer and that dog is really afraid, but we say like, oh, he did just fine because he didn't react or he didn't do anything. Um, in some cases it is that it, so that it can be punished out. So we see this, We you know, the um, dogs who are experiencing learned helplessness, we have had this popularized by some of the major terrible dog trainers out there who describe it as, uh, calm submissive. I think is the term that they use, yeah. and so they're trying to say that the dog Art. is calm. The dog is actually just afraid to um speak up to speak up to be to show who the, their true colors to show that they're afraid to react. Um, and it's why we don't want to do things like punish growls and things like that because we can force a dog to skip um some of those th- those warnings, but we can also. Mm-hmm. Um, teach a dog just they have they don't there's no point in doing anything and they shut down so there's a difference between a dog who looks calm in those moments Um, that dog isn't calm they are just no longer able to react Um, so we shut down I think is a great term Um, but what other so um, what other behaviors would we see as well so we see them they've never worn a collar maybe they're not used to being walked on leash body handling what else would we body
1: handling i mean just the regular um i mean some of them don't even know how to drink water out of a bowl
0: which is fascinating i mean
1: it's it's that so sometimes we had to tweak things like we had um bowls that were suspended um so they weren't on the floor because if they would tip a bowl and the metal would make a sound that could send them over the edge Um, there's a huge, from my experience, there's a huge flight. They are a big flight risk. Um, so any chance that they will get, they may want to just, whoa, I need to run. I need to escape. So they are quite creative too, sometimes of, um, trying to get out of their kennels, which is really fascinating because they will, uh, when they freak out, I mean, I think as a human, if I'm in danger, I'm not really thinking of what may actually how I may injure myself. I just need to be out. Um what else? I mean, it's it, it was really fascinating because it's um they really think hands are evil, right? Oh, like yeah. they have no good experience with hands or an approach. So we really have to be cognizant of our body language. They watch us all the time. It is mind-boggling as to how it made me more aware. I mean, I went into a kennel with a dog that I spent a, a day every week for two weeks. And I happened to have a different, so we wore scrubs that looked the same, right? So they were the same. So we looked the same. Um if I wore glasses, I made sure to wear them for two weeks, right? Because then I looked different, especially um midway through the farm. But one day I I the dog knew me, right, was comfortable, was coming in to check me out. I had worn a different t-shirt, color, a different colored t-shirt. Wow. And the dog was right away. And the color was the same as Griffin's banner in the back. That's what made no, me think like of a, it. like a bright green. Um, HSI colors are forest green, but some of the t-shirts were bright green. So I wore that one. Um, and it was like, I don't know who you are. That's fascinating. Um, it was, yeah, it was growling in the corner of the kennel. <clears throat> so I was like, okay, I'm going to respect the growl as I always do. I went to switch and, uh, Oh, hi, how are you? Where's my we chicken? We saw
0: this in shelter too. Um, I remember we had, um, cats who had come, they were British short hair cats, um, who had been, um, brought in through cruelty investigations, into the shelter, and they were cats who really hadn't been handled a lot, so they were extremely fearful. And in the beginning, we um they were under quarantine, so we had to wear uh PPE, so we had um the bonnets. Oh, there. I think yeah. they had a ringworm, which, if anyone any shelter people out there listening will know, this is a um it's a nightmare I situation. Yes. <laughs> we had you know the they, we had bonnets on, we had gloves, and we had yellow PPE gowns. And those cats, because we were doing work with them for the two weeks that they were in quarantine, those cats got so used to us in the PPE. Mm-hmm. That when we got them out of quarantine and got them into regular, uh, like a regular kennel situation, um, they were actually, they re- they had a little bit of a regression. They were a little bit more afraid of yep. us when we took off the PPE because they had actually gotten used to us as friendly people wearing this crazy getup. So, Um, it's amazing how sensitive some of, and this is, I think some, some, some of the things that people, um, who haven't seen these dogs or met these dogs or worked with these dogs and, and cats, obviously we just talked about how, how different they can be from, you know, like the happy go lucky lab that we've, that we got. And he's just perfect. They're almost a completely different species. When we look at like their behavior, they can just be so sensitive and so, um, you know, like you say, like you can't even, you have to wear your glasses because they get used to you in glasses. So when we, now we get these dogs, now we're going to put them into a home. How does this translate? Like what, when they go into an adoptive home, um, are they, is this better now or does the adopter have to be careful? Like what would the adopter have to expect when they bring them home?
1: So there's a couple of scenarios because we weren't not a shelter that were. Adopting the dogs out. We got them in. They were in quarantine. We got them out of quarantine. Then um, the Humane Society was affiliated with different shelters in the province of Quebec and on Ontario and in other parts of North America. And we would try to assess them behaviorally as much as possible because different shelters serve as different areas, right? So uh, those that are further away from city center. Maybe they will take the dogs that could potentially be better off in a quiet urban farming area. Um, so I don't have experience with adopters. Uh, I do have a lot of colleagues from HSI that adopted some of these little dogs and big ones. And I've had contact with them and they are absolutely They are not normal dogs when they arrive in a family Um, house training. They have no idea what that is. Right. And we all know dogs don't generalize, but usually you have to expect that they need to be treated as puppies with baggage because they missed out on their socialization period. So house training is a huge, huge um, issue because these are large dogs
0: Right. So that's a Large of- adult dog pooping in the house. It's different exactly. than a little puppy poo. Although Griffin's poos were pretty big when he was a puppy, but, <laughs> but a big, a, we're talking a big dog who, um, they were kennel or kept in a cage when they were young. So they didn't get, again, they missed out on that early, um, one-on-one work where we would normally be house training. They didn't have that. And in fact, they had no choice but to soil where yeah. they were sleeping and eating, which we know is also terrible for welfare. So they go. You have to go right back to the to basics. Treat them like a puppy. House train them.
1: Um, What about their world has to be small, right? You know, you can't invite over your family because you got a new dog, right? It's we have to keep their world small. They have to get used to their house, their new family. They one thing I know is these dogs really. And this is my opinion. It's not like scientific proof they thrive if there's other dogs in the home Mm -hmm. they it does seem to help them come out of their shell by being with another dog in the home uh so you know how a lot of shelters municipal shelters like can be the only dog in the family these guys the more like i'm not saying the more the merrier but if you had a dog they will be great because they will lean on that dog if that dog is more resilient amazing um so that was really cool uh because i find it's hard to find um a second pet um but you have to they have never gone down the stairs let's say and now when we think about stairs i see stairs they see oh that's metal that's cold that's wood slippery that is see-through i mean all of these surfaces these little things Crossing over a threshold from a big open space to a narrower hallway. I mean, with a human next to me, whoa, that's way too much pressure. So, spatial pressure for them, right? It's, it was very triggering. Uh, they would cower, but that doesn't mean that you can kind of push them around either, um because they still had their teeth if they mm-hmm. chose to use them. So, it's really just, I can't tell you the length of decompression for these guys. I know a few people with success stories but it's about it's not going to be a patio dog for most people like you can't go to a terrace and have a beer right i mean it's it's just not gonna happen my own dog is not good with that, and she's a pet dog um so you have to start from scratch and really really um just puppy proof the entire home because you leave one little slab uh, that's not fixed in the fence see ya right I mean they're gone wow they're really and they're really creative let me ask you did
0: when you talked about um like they weren't used to for example like eating dry food and things like that these little things that we take for granted um some of the dogs that I worked with in shelter they had actually never seen dog toys before did you find that they were like would they self-entertain and play or did they had they ever seen toys or what was that
1: like I don't I don't think they've ever seen so we introduced toys really carefully because we didn't want them to really panic um but most of their reactions were just a puppy seeing like squeaking, like stepping on a little soft squeak toy. And they would do like, I call it the banana dance, where they just go like, oh, my goodness. Um, enrichment was enrichment and toys, all of these things. We had to be created. We had to do a lot of do it yourself um, because a Kong wobbler was a bit too loud for them. Uh, and again, it came with kibble. I'm not crazy about kibble, so licky mats were better. Uh, but toys, I used to go and buy toys for them too. Well, I, um, yes, I we do remember the, this. <laughs> I was on the li- like. I mean, like every nonprofit is on a limited budget, but um, we just had to test out. Okay, did they enjoy the squeak? Or um, we did so many trash boxes that it, that was one of their favorite because it wasn't super loud so it wasn't noisy so essentially you take a box and you fill different smaller boxes with kibble or food and we had newspaper and we would do um, enrichment boxes and um it's sort of like a beginning of a noise box so they got used to that bouncing and thrashing it everywhere and oh my god food came out and then we slowly progressed into what we can buy in the stores for enrichment um But they like to destroy things. So you have to uh, make sure to take it away when they're done because those Kongs, we went through several.
0: (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a thing, right? Like we would have dogs in shelter that um we would put food into the bowl and put it on the ground and they had never eaten out of a bowl before Mm -hmm. and so the stainless steel bowl like some of them wouldn't eat and then if you put the food on the floor Mm -hmm. they would eat um and so it's little things like that that i think um we really don't think about as like pet owners when we bring home dogs like this or when we think about shelters working with dogs like this um you know, just how, like you say, they're, they really keep you honest because they're watching, they know they see every little mistake or every little detail. What, um, advice would you have if somebody's that somebody's listening to this and they're having that moment, like you had, when you had the dog trainer come to your house and talk about working with these dogs, what would, what advice would you have for someone who is hearing this and wants to get involved? Where should they, where could they start?
1: I think to really have realistic expectations and have that honest conversation that this may never be your average pet dog that we think, like think of Lassie or Scooby Doo. Um, This is—it's not necessarily about being this wonderful person and trying to save a dog from a life of misery. What what happened to them? We don't dwell on it. There's no point. We they start fresh, but it's. It takes a special kind of person, I believe, especially when you have that really, really fearful dog. Um that it's a long journey. Um, that it can take years before they are um they're gonna decide to jump up and maybe touch you a little bit with their paw to quasi snuggle. Don't 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 get too greedy and start to reach out for them. Um, but I think it's if if there is that person that wants to adopt a meat dog, that bond, that experience, because you keep the world small, you slowly grow it, and then they flourish and they decide to open up to everybody around you. For me, that I get shivers every time just thinking about it, because I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, I think they teach you patience, respect, resiliency. I mean. God, they should be really not happy with us humans. And they still give us a chance, a second chance.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, again, I've never worked with a meat uh, trade dog, but um, Mozzie was probably the most fearful dog that I've ever worked with. And I lived with her and it's definitely not for the faint of heart. You helped me through that Mm -hmm. time. I remember um, calling you in tears because Um, it is, it can be that hard, especially when you're really attached to them and to see them going Mm -hmm. through. I mean, when you can't even turn a light switch on or turn the TV on, or Mm -hmm. um, a door opening is like sneezing, sneezing, things that we don't, people wearing certain clothing, like we had, Ethan had what we called his scary jacket because it was nylon and it made like a sound as the arm rubbed against the body of the jacket. Um, and that was overwhelming for her and it really is so much work, but in the end it is so worth it. And just so, um, to whomever has adopted these dogs, my heart really goes out to you and it's just fantastic. And to people that are in the shelter, working with them one-on-one every day, you know, um, hats off to everybody doing the actual work. We used to have this, um, in shelter people would adopt dogs and then they would say I had I, I rescued the dog from the SPCA and it always got under my skin because people like you and people like um who I worked with um those dogs were rescued brought into the shelter system and the shelter workers they're not the ones that you have to rescue dogs from um so my heart goes out to all of the shelter workers working with all of these dogs and all of these different cases so Um, And you included, and it definitely shows, I would say in your training, like now I'm getting a sense into, you know, you're, you have such a good way of reading dogs. Like you, for those who have never watched Maya's videos, I highly recommend going, checking out um, her Instagram. But recently you posted a video of you working with a dog with a Border Collie. And you were doing the leave it plan. And at a certain point in the plan, it kept falling apart. And you said, watch the video and tell me what, where do you see it going wrong? Mm -hmm. And I watched that video over and over again. I was determined I was going to get it right. I was going to find where, what was happening, the, where the training broke down and I couldn't find it. And you said it's because you changed the position of where your hand was at one stage Mm -hmm. in in the plan and the dog um a border collie, so super sensitive to movement and change, things like that, picked up on that. And that was throwing him for a loop. I couldn't see that. But now I see where you honed your skills to be able to read the dog that well. It's really, it's really cool actually to kind of go back to basics and find out exactly, you know, how Maya became the trainer that she is today. So um thank you so much for spending time with me today talking about this and thank you for
1: having the work that you've and- done. I hope it'll shed some light that these dogs are wonderful. That I don't want to say that it will never be this or that. They if you are that person that is willing to make some sacrifices, um they're they're great companions. Um my dog cannot live with another dog. Otherwise I would have 15. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to
0: see that actually. 15. Um and tell us for people that are listening, so you operate um out of Montreal, tell us where people can find you.
1: So my Instagram, there's no, it's not really professional, it's for shits and giggles. Um I do post some pictures with clients, but I work with um I, I work for Ivy League Dogs Montreal. Uh so we're we're a local-based dog trading, we're uh for women trainers. Cause I think the rescue world is also full of women and yes. we are all from the rescue world as well. So you can support us. You can check out, uh, we unfortunately don't have time to post amazing content like Emily does. We try, um, but we specialize in fear and aggression and separation anxiety. Um, so yeah, if you want to check us out, Instagram, I believe is Ivy league dogs, Montreal. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a women business and we we love uh, supporting women businesses. And Emily, you've been wonderful and I'm rambling now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say if you do, if you live in the Montreal area and you have a dog who is um, struggling with fear, aggression um, or with reactivity, um, you cannot go wrong with any of the trainers at Ivy League. Maya, I would trust you with my own dogs and that's, um, I don't say Same. that often. need neither. <laughs> so, but thank you so much um, for spending time here today. And yeah, it's been fascinating getting to know the, these surviving dogs. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the wild at heart podcast. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at wild at heart dogs online at wild at heart I work primarily with herding breed dogs struggling with breed behaviors and reactivity, and I have a complete lineup of webinars, classes, and private virtual training options for clients. Artwork for the podcast was by the talented Ethan Beaudry. Theme music by Adam Percy and inspired by Griff, our Border Collie. Sound editing and post-production was by Secret Clubhouse Sound on Denman Island. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and if you like the show, subscribe and follow and leave a review. If you have a guest you'd like to suggest, please reach out to me at wildatheartdogs at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.